in our study of David and of 2 Samuel as a part of our whole survey of the Old Testament. We're looking this evening at consequences and forgiveness. Probably this evening looking mainly at consequences, which uh, is not a bad preparation for the Lord's Supper ever. But last time we saw that when we sin, there always are victims. Whenever there is a sin committed, there are victims involved. There are human victims, and then there is God who is hurt and grieved uh, by our sin, and yet uh, not victimized in any kind of a human sense, and yet uh, He is the object of our sin. I guess we we could put it that way. Uh, So that there are always victims, human and divine, and there are always consequences. Uh, Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not until eternity. Whenever we break God's commandments, whenever we fall short of His glory, whenever we do what is displeasing to Him, there are always going to be consequences. And this is one of the main lessons to be learned from this passage of Scripture. No one ever, ever gets away with sin. Not ever. And if you're wondering about the great demons of uh, human history and wondering if they ever got their due, the answer is absolutely they do. Maybe in time, maybe not, but ultimately they do. And nobody ever gets away with anything. And this is an important point to be made in our day because we live in a time where there is this deadly combination that is so popularly presented, that is, of a glamorized, romanticized, sensationalized view of sin uh, where everybody is tough and hard and loose and, and rarely for anyone are there, are there any consequences for anything that they do. Everybody's living the kind of James Bond uh, charmed life where uh, you're involved in violence, you're involved in immorality, and are there ever any consequences for you? No, nothing. You just enjoy life and you go right on and nothing ever seems to happen negative as a consequence of it. You can sin and get away with it. You can enjoy the pleasures of this world and and nothing ever becomes of it. And I think what's clear as we look at uh, verses 10 through 31 this evening or as far as we get, uh, we are given a clear insight into God's retributive justice, uh, God's exacting vengeance as sin has consequences and God is the one who guarantees that it shall. And so building upon what we've seen in previous lessons as we went through first, 2 Samuel 11 and we saw the commission of the sin, uh, 2 Samuel 12, uh, we saw Nathan's uh, parable of the, the man with the ewe lamb and the rich man who took it from him and slaughtered it. And then we saw Nathan saying, you are the man, and uh, pointing the finger at David and saying exactly what you did and directing him to the offense as being primarily offense against God Now in verse 10, he is going to spell out the consequences as God's justice falls hard upon him. So let's see first the promise that the sword shall not depart. The divine verdict is in verses 10 through 15. Verse 10, Now therefore, God says to David through Nathan, The sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Here's what God is saying. 
You see, in verse 9, he said, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. All right, you use the sword against Uriah. The consequence for you is going to be that the sword will never depart from you. You use the sword against him. I'm going to use the sword against you. And as history unfolds, we'll find that Absalom, his son, will murder his half-brother Amnon in chapter 13. Absalom will rebel against his father. Civil war will break out in Israel in chapters 15 through 18, culminating in the death of a second son as Absalom falls in battle in chapter 18. And then in chapter 20, Sheba will revolt, and there will be a second civil war in Israel. After David's death, Adonijah will be executed by his half-brother Solomon as uh, as. Uh, the, the beginnings of yet another civil war breaks out in Israel. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, will lose half of the kingdom as yet another civil war breaks out in Israel. And conflict between northern and southern kingdoms will be characteristic of Israel for all of its history. The sons of David successively are never spared the sword again throughout the history of Israel. You use the sword, you will receive the sword. And Jesus stated the same principle again. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And so it will never depart. And in verses 11 and 12, God says through Nathan that there will be familial, family troubles, including the open shame of adultery in his household. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. You've seen that already with, with Absalom. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I, God says, I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. The evil of which God speaks, that He will raise up this evil, you see. God's saying in verse 11, I will raise up evil against you. What will that consist of? It will begin with Amnon, as he will rape his sister Tamar. And then Absalom will kill Amnon. And then Absalom, in the midst of the civil war, as he leads a rebellion against his own father, in 2 Samuel chapter 16, having chased his father and his followers out of Jerusalem, Absalom then pitches his tent upon the roof of his father's house in the presence of all Israel and takes his father's concubines into his tent so that they, all of Israel, might know that he has defiled his father's wives, his father's concubines. God's saying, by the agency of Absalom, in a way that frankly is frightening to me, and to the, the, the seriousness of this is underscored by God's use of the personal pronoun here. I will raise up this evil. I will even take your wives before your eyes. Verse 42, you did it secretly. You were off in the corner, as it were, uh, with, uh, with Bathsheba. But what you did secretly, I will do this thing before all Israel. And as it turns out, I will do it through your son 
with your, your concubines publicly so that all might see. And this, by the way, by Absalom, was, was, was a way in which um, kingship, succession to the throne was indicated. In the, uh, in the east, uh, one king succeeded another, uh, and this was publicly demonstrated by the receiving of the wives of the previous monarch into the household of the new monarch. And so Absalom pitched his tent and brought them in one by one in the presence of the whole, of the whole nation. Now in verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. And you shall not die. Forgiveness, you notice, is, is immediate upon the request. Even the desire for, for, uh, for, for forgiveness. Hardly is it even expressed as the desire, the true heartfelt uh, desire of David for forgiveness is expressed. And yet... Uh, 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 that, 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 that forgiveness is then granted. And yet, carrying on through, the judgments continue. However, he says in verse 14, all right, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, does the forgiveness of sin mean that he escapes temporal punishments? Uh, because God forgives you for your sins, you break the speeding law, does that mean you don't have to pay your ticket? Yeah. Do you escape the, 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 the consequences of evil actions in this world because God, from His throne in heaven, grants you the forgiveness of your sins? Absolutely not. So, there is the, the, the solemn however of verse 14. All right, your sin has been taken away. You shall not die. However, there are consequences, David, and you're going to bear them. That's what this is saying. God and all His grace and all His goodness. We have uh, seen the grace of God in Christ Jesus. We have received of His goodness. We have received of His loving kindness and patience. Nevertheless, when you break God's law, it has a way of coming back upon you and breaking you, and there are consequences, and those consequences are born. You may not take them to eternity with you, but the repercussions in this world can be severe and quite inescapable. And so the solemn, however, however, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. That ended Nathan's message in verse 15. So Nathan went down to his house. You see, David, there are greater considerations than your forgiveness here. Your forgiveness is important, but there's also the matter of the vindication of God's holy name. And so the child that you have born is going to die. And why is that, uh, as you might say, innocent child going to die? Because, number one, God wants to publicly demonstrate his displeasure with your sin. The justice of the death of that child would be obvious to all. How is it obvious to all? Because David and Bathsheba, secondly, are not going to profit by their sin. That's what God is saying. No, nobody in the world is going to think, oh, they sinned and got away with it, and they get this beautiful uh, child in the process. God must not be too displeased with it. After all, they have prospered as they have through their sin. And so God says, no, you're not going to profit by it. 
You're not going to seem, it's not going to seem to the world that you were blessed. Everybody's going to know because that child gets sick and that child dies that I was most displeased with what happened here and as a consequence, I'm going to take the life of your child. Well, you might say, well, is that fair to the child? Well, this child's born into a fallen world. There are consequences of sin. And sometimes children who are not themselves the perpetrators of the sin fall victim to it because of the sins of the fathers. As a, as a consequence for, this, for the child is, I mean, I wouldn't feel too sorry for it. The child goes to heaven. So it's not as though the, 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 the child gets a bad deal out of the situation. The child does go to heaven. Of course, it would have been preferable that it would have had the opportunity to live and live amongst uh, uh, the, 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 the children of God and the servants of God. But God would have none of that. There's not going to be any problem with appearances this time. Now, sometimes there are problems with appearances. Sometimes it does seem that the wicked prosper. And God does not always vindicate His name with the immediacy that He does here. But what I think we should see and recognize and be warned about is that even though He doesn't always strike as quickly as He did here, He always strikes. No one gets away with it. That's the statement God is making in taking away the life of this child. David, you don't get away with it. The whole world's going to know you don't get away with it. And let the whole world know for succeeding generations that nobody ever gets away with it. Even though it may take weeks and months and years and decades, as it were, for me to finally catch up with them in that sense. And it may not even be until eternity. They may go on uh, fat and prosperous, as Psalm 73 says enjoying the, the good and the rich things of life right until the day that they die and have no pain in their death, as, they, as the psalmist complains in Psalm 73. And yet, it always catches up. And let's make a few other observations about uh, the nature of these judgments. One, I think that we should notice is the judgments of God are not arbitrary. They are directly related to the nature of the offense. You reap what you sow. If you reap, if you sow the wind, what do you reap? The whirlwind. If you sow the flesh, what do you reap? Destruction. You see, the sowing and the reaping are related to one another. The judgments of God aren't arbitrary. God is not sitting up in heaven and saying, uh, well, let's think about what we can do to David. Hey, David has uh, committed adultery and committed murder and deception and all this. What could we do that would be appropriate to that? Let's try to find, uh, let's just, or, or, or let's just reach a, into, the, into, a, into a hat and pull out some judgments. Uh, judgment for the day. Spin the wheel, as it were, and let's see what judgment we come up with. No, the, the frightening thing here is that God's judgments are di directly related to the nature of the offense. You sin with the sword, you'll be punished by the sword. You sin, you sin with adultery, you're going to be punished and visited with future incidences of adultery that have the same kind of destructive effect on your family as it had on the family of Uriah the Hittite. David, you're a murderer. You're going to give birth to murdering children. David, you're an adulterer. You're going to give birth to, a, to immoral children. You see, the very sins that are indulged are the sins that will be passed on. The nature of the judgments are consistent with the nature of the offense. They are not arbitrary. 
And then the second thing I want us to notice about these judgments is though they are divine acts and God is emphatically saying, I will do this. Yet they're very, very natural. God Himself is the agent in a way that is mysterious even. As God says, I am going to do this thing on the rooftop in the presence of all Israel. This thing, of course, that God would never do. And God cannot do because God cannot sin and does not sin. And yet He wants to so closely associate this judgment with Himself that He even uses the personal pronoun as it applies to that heinous offense. I will do this thing in the sight of the whole nation of Israel. Alright? So, it's a divine act. And yet, it's a very natural thing in another, in another respect. In that, it is just the outworking of the way things work in God's universe. You see what I'm saying? God is emphatic, I'm doing this. But at the same time, it's just what one would expect was going, was going to happen. David, you've assaulted the foundation of the of family and of society. So what do you expect is going to happen? You're undermining the two, the two uh, crucial institutions, the family and respect respect for the marriage bond, and respect for life. Now, having done that, what do you think is going to happen? You model disrespect for life. You model disrespect for the marriage bond. And what do you think is going to happen in your family and throughout your kingdom? Of course, this is just going to be reproduced. What you modeled is going to be copied. And so, it's a, these judgments... They are divine acts. God is emphatic about that. Yet they are in another way just the natural outworking of the offense itself. You show contempt for life, there's going to be bloodshed in your nation, in your family. You show contempt for marriage and family, well then there will be moral license throughout uh, the nation. God inflicts these judgments, but they are also the outworking of David's sin. He is reaping what he has sown. What he is modeling he will be reproduced. And this is something for us to very carefully consider together. What you ridicule, be you ever so saintly and godly, uh, be you ever so religious and moral, what you ridicule, what you model a, a, a ridicule for will be re reproduced in your children and in others and then those close to you. What you tolerate that is wrong or improper or ungodly, you're going to find that those closest to you tolerate the same. What you indulge is going to be indulged by your children and those who are closest to you. What you ignore, that really ought to be dealt with. You're going to find the same attitudes uh, uh, of being reproduced in those uh, with, with whom you are closest. Those things that are contrary to the Word of God, that you ridicule, that you tolerate, that you indulge, that you in ignore, they will come back to haunt you in the lives of others who are close to you, and especially in the lives of your children. They will be visited 
back to you once again. And all of this, mind you, all of this in the context of verse 13 and forgiveness. David repents and God receives his repentance. In this context, what does that mean? That he has been forgiven. Verse 13 again, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Let's, let's, let's examine this for a few minutes. We find here David confessing his guilt. He uses few words. Few words, yes, but he offers no excuses. There are no loopholes. It's an open, candid, direct admission of guilt. He faces the facts, and he admits, though he loses face, and perhaps it might even be political suicide for him. For a monarch, an eastern monarch, to admit wrongdoing in this sort of way would have been seen by his contemporaries, I believe, as being a foolish thing to do by one who was a monarch. But he does it. Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 fill out the details for us, and we've looked at those in, in detail previously. Uh, the second thing about this uh, repentance and forgiveness. Forgiveness is granted. What does it mean, you shall not die, as God says that his sins are forgiven? It means, I think, in the first instance, that he's not struck dead, for one thing. God might have done that. He would have been perfectly just in doing that. He's not legally dead either in the sense that there have not been witnesses which were required in order to execute somebody uh, guilty of adultery. They must be found, as it were, in the commission of the act. To say also, you shall not die, means that he's not eternally dead. He is being saved from the ultimate penalties of his sin. In this world, he's going to, he's going to suffer the consequences but as far as his soul is concerned, God is granting to him a full and complete and total remission of sins. And notice the quickness with which God grants this to him. It is immediate. It is upon the first inkling of repentance. Though certainly we are well uh, to, to, to acknowledge because of Psalm 51 that this was deep, it was true, it was personal. Nevertheless, as soon as the words leave his lips, Nathan grants it. And I think that will be an encouragement to us. God is not holding back on his forgiveness. He is not stingy with his grace. He's not demanding that you jump through certain hoops in order to be saved. He's not demanding that uh, you, you uh, run an obstacle course before he's going to give you forgiveness of your sins. You may be guilty, like David, of heinous sins. And they don't get much worse than David, do they? Now, I don't know what sins you've committed. And I also know that what, however bad they are, there are also sins which God is equally, if not more, displeased with, like pride and uh, hypocrisy and uh, selfishness and uh, these sorts of things that were so severely condemned by the Pharisees. But if you are guilty of adultery, if you are guilty of murder, if you are guilty of pride, if you are guilty of selfishness, sins of the heart or sins of the body or sins of attitude or sins of speech, guilty of gossip, guilty of judgmentalism, whatever the sin might be, 
What we learn from this text, certainly, is that God is not holding back His forgiveness from anyone who is truly repentant. And that surely is the meaning of the table here. And that surely is the meaning of the gospel. And that surely is what Jesus is saying when He says, Come unto Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God is ready, standing, ready to forgive all who truly repent of their sins. And the forgiveness is not something that He is hesitant to grant, but eager and ready to grant. If you well but admit it, if you well but acknowledge it, if you well but own it and not to shift the guilt to someone else or excuse yourself or blame your mother or blame your spouse or blame your child or blame stress or blame whatever you have a habit of blaming, but acknowledge it and admit it and say to God as David did against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And once that enters his heart, it hardly passes his lips and forgiveness is stated unequivocally and instantly for David, and so it is for us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. That's the promise. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The word of forgiveness also includes the continuation of David's dynasty. That's implied in verse 10. Even though bloodshed will come upon his house, Nevertheless, his house, his dynasty will continue for generation after generation. And so we have the the two sides of this. And I I think we probably need at this point to to come back to this uh, and to finish it off on another occasion. But we have clearly the two sides to this. Two sides um, not not at conflict with one another, not contrary to one another, but ultimately compatible with one another. Two sides uh, to the gospel in this life. When you sin, God is ever ready to forgive. That's the meaning of the table. That's the meaning of the gospel. That's what we're here to proclaim. But, dear children, don't be mistaken in thinking that because I'm going to be forgiven the eternal consequences of my sin and Christ is bearing them. Don't think that that means that there will be no temporal consequences and in this life I can sin with impunity. Because you won't. And so be ever vigilant, careful to lead holy lives in conformity with the will of God in obedience to His commands. Because if you indulge sin in any area of your life, It will come back to haunt you and it may persecute you and oppress you maybe the rest of your life. Following you about wherever you go. Having been forgiven, granted. The eternal consequences. But plagued as it were. If the point is not made, this is put it in black and white and concrete, as clearly as we can. David sins with Bathsheba. Are there temporal consequences? The obvious. There's a child. You commit that sin, one of the consequences in this world, though there is forgiveness, 
They've brought a child into the world. Speed, you've got to pay the ticket. If you play, you've got to pay. There are consequences for what we do. Let us give thanks together for the glorious, instantaneous forgiveness of Christ. Let's not compromise and obscure that a bit. You confess your sins, God will absolve you of the eternal consequence. Let's also be realistic and serious about what happens in this world when we indulge our sin and violate the law of God and keep those things present before us that we might seek the grace of God in Christ and be forgiven our sins, but also that we would be ever more vigilant to lead holy lives in conformity with the will of God. As we pray together,